Well, good morning. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I'm a, a pastor on staff and the headmaster across the street at Bethany Christian School, and it's, it's good to be with you this morning. A week ago, Saturday, I and a, a team of people were coming back from Haiti when it was... Of, of all the families, I think of the 13 different families, 12 of them were, were from Bethany. And it was just such a really, really amazing, powerful trip where not all believers, because Bethany's an outreach school, but most of us believers got on a plane. We went over to Haiti. We went to Bear Sea and, and, and the main campus and to the Olympic sports complex. And we put on a, a, a wonderful program with saints. And it was powerful. And here's, here's the deal of what happened. It's you can, you can have all the time in the classroom and everything else, but you get out in the mission field and you see amazing things start to happen and people being moved. Before I ever got into ministry, I was teaching Bible at Westminster Academy and a, and a fellow pastor up the road who preaches there, Dwayne Meller, came to me and he said, Sam, I know that you teach and I know that, that you do apologetics and you do theology and you do systematics and all kinds of stuff like that and you get all excited and you teach your kids and, and they get excited about everything. But here's the deal. You get in the classroom for 180 days of the year with these students to download biblical instruction into them. Give me four days with those same kids on the mission field and I'll bet... I make better disciples of them than you do. I bet I win their hearts. I bet, or the gospel wins their hearts. I bet that they finish those four days on fire far more than 180 days under your lecturing, which to some of you might sound like punishment anyway. <laughs> but I bet those four days on the mission field will do far more for those kids. And you know what? He's right. Why? Well, if you've done your personal worship this week, Paul's going to address that. He's going to say that, you know, I don't want to come to you and the wisdom of men and with clever words and with eloquence and, and cleverly crafted arguments. I want to be invisible and I want you to experience the wisdom and the power of God. I want you to experience the power of the cross. And you know what? That message is far, far, far more attractive when we become invisible in the process and the hands and the feet and the love and the beauty of the cross and all that it provides in us and through us to the watching world. When people see that, that's the power of God. The rest of it seems like foolishness to the world. I mean, let's take a step back and consider what it is that Paul comes into the city of Corinth, which as Tom said, is a lot like Fort Lauderdale, very wealthy, cosmopolitan city. It's got the arts. It's got the decadence. It's got all the stuff that we have. And Paul is going into that city to give this message. God created us to be in this wonderful, loving relationship with us, to draw near to us, to pour out into us, to be in relationship with us forever. And we, in turn, said, and spat in the face of God saying, no, I want the throne. I don't want to be under you. I don't want your authority. And so we rebelled. And God came to us 
again and again and again and again through all the covenants of the Old Testament saying, come to me, come to me, let me be your provision, let me be enough. And what did we do? We ran more and more and more away from him. And everything we tried in the story of redemptive history, whether it was the patriarchs or the kings or the judges or the prophets, every solution we tried to throw at this problem failed. And so God came in the person of Jesus Christ because we are too broken. Our souls are too self-absorbed. We are too much of a mess to save ourselves. And this world is too broken. And so God sent His Son who had lived with Him from eternity past, dwelling as one God in perfect harmony. God sent Him to the world to suffer like we suffer, to be poor, to be hungry, to be reviled, to suffer depression, to go through the pains of this world that we suffer, and then to go to the cross and in himself, the perfect God, the essence of love, to swallow into himself all of our mess and poison. And Jesus, the Son of God, went to the cross and suffered humiliation and torture and agony. And he took from you the curse of death and the power of sin and defeated it on that cross. And that is your only hope. And the people of Corinth are going, that's crazy. That's foolishness. And so that's where Paul starts in his argument with them and his discussion in this letter. 1 Corinthians 18, Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And I used to read this passage, and I thought to myself that this is a statement about salvation someday. I used to read this as though it were saying, The word of the cross is folly to those who will perish someday. That's not what it says. It says present tense. The word of the cross is not something that's saved up for when you appear before the throne of heaven. And it's like, okay, which way is a bad egg, good egg? Like, no, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. If you reject the cross, it leaves your life disintegrating now and then. Because the word of the cross is not just powerful for Jesus. It's not just talking about the cross of Christ where he went to atone and suffer for our sins as the Lamb of God. The cross that's foolish to the world is also the cross that we're called to carry. Because Jesus doesn't just go into the cross, die for our sins and say, all right, live however you want. He says, if you'll come after me, you have to what? Take up your own cross and carry it daily. What does he mean by that? He means all of your instincts, all of your self-absorption, die to that stuff, crucify it, put it on the cross and trust in my wisdom. Stop leaning on your own wisdom. Stop chasing after wealth. Stop trusting in your own strength. Stop trying to prove yourself at every turn. Stop trying to find your identity and all the mess of this world. Die to that stuff and let me live and shine through you. And the word of that cross 
When the world hears that, what do you mean stop chasing after money? What do you mean give your stuff to those who need it? What do you mean be humble? What do you mean don't seek after power or lord it over people? What do you mean treasure Christ more than anything this world has to offer? That's crazy. But the reality is that those who are striving apart from the cross that looks at you and says, you're mine, you are treasured and precious in the sight of God, you are cloaked in his righteousness, and there's nothing you can do to add to the love of God for you. And there's no sin, there's no depths of depravity, there's nothing too far for the Lord to chase after you and redeem you from. When you can stand before God as he welcomes you to do and say, God, I am a mess and I need you and my identity and my value is in you because if the God of the universe looks at me and says that my price tag is his son on a cross, What other identity or value in this world could I chase after or need that's greater than that? But the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And hear that, perishing, because they're going through this world in their own strength. They're trying to control their wealth and their business and their marriage and, and trying to cling to all these things that, by the way, you cannot possibly control. And you're building all your hope and identity and treasure and we do that and we we strive after this stuff and here's the deal. We call, humanity's instinct calls the cross foolishness. But all that stuff we're striving after is ultimately going to be stripped from you. Guaranteed. Money. Relationships. Power. Job. Guaranteed. Death has a 100% success rate. It's going to get you. And the world looks at the cross and says, that's crazy. And yet they're chasing after things that are guaranteed to fail them. That's crazy. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God And then Paul goes on and he gets a little confrontational, which I like. He goes and he's talking to these people. He's saying, no, 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 that cross is crazy. We got to figure it out. And he says, oh, really? Well, I got a challenge for you. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? You show me where is the debater of this age? Because he's certainly not on the stage of the GOP or the Democrats either. You show me. You, you, you've got it all figured out, right? The world has become easy for you. You figured out justice and peace. You figured out how to stop hatred. You figured out how to put an end to wars. You figured out how to get rid of misery in your life. Okay, well, show me the guy who's got that wisdom. Bring him on forward. Come on. You, you've got it figured out. Where is he? Where's the debater? Where's the one who's wise? You show me. Who in your camp has it figured out? Who in your camp can bring Shalom. Who in your camp can bring joy and peace and make sense of the world? And the reality is, even the best philosophers of the Greek age came to the conclusion that there is no such wisdom. Socrates writes The Republic, probably the most famous book of philosophy. 
And the whole book he devotes to where can I find justice in the world? Where can we find peace? Where can we find what all human souls long for? And you know what Socrates ultimately ends up saying? Maybe in heaven. (laughs) Maybe in heaven there's a pattern of justice because it can't happen here. It's too broken. So Paul comes to the world who's saying they have it figured out. And he's saying, show me. Who's got that wisdom? You got it figured out? I don't see it. Looks like a mess to me. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Look at the results of what you think is wise. Look at the results that happen when you chase after your self-interest. You've made this world a miserable slime pit. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the cross, to save those who believe. And so he goes on. How, how do people miss the cross? Paul, Paul continues. How do you miss the power and the wisdom of the cross? Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 22 and he says, For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Let me stop there and explain what he means. Because if you go back to the farthest days of philosophy and human thinking, there is no system under heaven, whether it's atheism or Buddhism or Hinduism or philosophy or anything, there's not one single system that looks at human souls And the way the world is and says, yep, they're perfect together. Perfect harmony. Everything's good. My work is done here. Every one of those systems comes to us and says, there is something about the human soul and something about the world that we live in that is a mess and they don't jive. And so we need to come up with some wisdom, some system, something that can explain and bring these two together so that we experience peace, so that we experience joy, so that we experience purpose and meaning and all these things. But here's the problem. They're a mess. And so the Jews demand signs. And what Paul is saying, and we do this too, by the way. The Jews are saying, we were okay. You know, our souls are all right. But here's the deal. Our world is a mess because we're conquered and ruled by empires. One after the next after the next. We're subjugated. We're treated like second-class citizens. And so the promises of the scripture tell us that we're going to have this everlasting Messiah who's going to come. And he's going to give us a kingdom where righteousness reigns and all these wonderful things. He's going to transform the world. But our souls are okay. So here's the deal. Give us a sign. Show us Who you are. Change our circumstances in this world so that the world conforms to our soul and will follow. Don't we do that? Don't don't we do that? Like, God, if you want me to follow you, then here's the things I demand. Give me a sign. I can remember in my early days of faith, and I'm sure nobody else in here has ever done this, where you're looking after wisdom and you throw up in the Bible and go... And you want a sign from God. You want him to show you something. You want him to change your circumstances, to do something supernatural before you'll trust. That's one way of wisdom. Change the world. God, change the world to fit my soul, and then I'll follow you. And the other side, the Greeks seek wisdom. They're like, all right, we need some nugget of wisdom. We need some list that can make, that can, so we can conform our soul to fit the world. 
because our souls are the mess. So, so give us some virtue, some work ethic, some system of belief that will change our souls so that it meshes with the world. Don't you do that too? God, just give me a list. Give me, give me some things that I can do, and I'll take it from here. I don't need you. I got I'll pick myself up by my own bootstraps. You just give me some nuggets of wisdom that I can hang my life on. I got it from here. Don't need you. Just give me the wisdom. Give me the list. And Jesus comes to both camps. Paul comes to both camps and says, no. No. You see, it's not the soul alone that's broken. It's not the world alone that's broken. They're both broken. It does no good to try to correct your soul to live in a messed up world. And it does no good to change the world to conform to a messed up soul. Paul is going to come and he's going to say, you want a solution? You're both seeking after this. You want a sign to fit the world to your soul and you want nuggets of wisdom to fit your soul to the world? No, there is one solution that can bring harmony between the two that can redeem both the souls of men and redeem a broken world that's filled with misery and all kinds of mess. One solution and that's Christ. And Christ crucified. That is the only solution. And so he says, the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Take your best crafted arguments And what you call the foolishness of God put a son on the cross. Look at the power that that manifests itself in people. His foolishness is way better than your best wisdom. And his weakness, his humility, his willingness to suffer and set aside all the things that he's entitled to. My goodness, it's way stronger than the most powerful of men. Paul, when he writes his letter to the Colossians, says this, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, hear that, through him, he reconciles all this stuff that can't ever be put together with human wisdom or or signs. Through him, he reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. You see, you want to figure out this world. You want to know how we can reconcile all these things so that we're not depending on lists or nuggets of wisdom or for God to do some miraculous sign that we can follow after. It's Jesus, period. Christ crucified takes all of your longings, the longings of men, and he is the only pathway to the things that your soul most longs for. And this... Diagram. I want you to take a look at this. On the top half of that arc, that's the stuff of God. Those are the things that belong to Him because of who He is. 
He has all authority and renown and fame and he's an eternal being who has abundant life dwelling in heaven with the praises of the angels as the God who's supreme over all creation, who is a spirit filled with infinite glory. All of his attributes flowing in infinite measure, wealth, amazing holiness and righteousness, blinding, peace, you name all of it. Those are the attributes of God. Those are the things that we long after. But unfortunately, as the people of Corinth understood and as we understand too well today too, our lot is the bottom half. Our lot is sin and poverty And finite, frail, weak creatures and suffering in the flesh as men on the earth doomed to certain death at a time and rejection and depression and submission to the governing forces of the world. And here's the amazing thing of the gospel. And here's why Paul is saying it's not techniques. It's not signs. It's not all that stuff that you can place your hope in. Here's the deal. There's one path to what you seek for, and it's Christ. Why? Because the God who has all the things, authority and eternity and heaven and glory and wealth and holiness and all of that stuff, set it aside and came down and inhabited all of our mess. And he became drenched in sin and a life of poverty and homelessness. And he became a finite human being in the flesh and suffered as a man on the earth. And he suffered death at the appointed time and the rejection of his people and submission to the Father saying, God, I don't want to go to the cross, but not my will, yours be done. And you know what happened? Jesus took all the lot of men and suffered so that we could be given all the things of God. But here's the deal. As Paul is saying, the wisdom of men won't get you there. Tricks, they're not going to get you there. Signs, changes in your circumstances here on earth, not going to get you there. You want the fulfillment of your soul. You want all the stuff that people long for on the top half of that ark. And there is but one way to those things. And it is Christ and Christ crucified. Period. Human wisdom will not get you there. Human strength not going to get you there. Human righteousness, not going to get you there. Christ, period. And so how do we claim the wisdom and the power of the cross? Well, Paul goes on and see if you can pick up on what Paul is hinting at here. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, to which I'm sure the Corinthians went, thanks. (laughs) You guys are just a bunch of morons. So not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. I love that he does this. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The only thing that you bring to your story of salvation is the sin that made it necessary. God has given you all things. God provided all things. And when we walk humbly, when we recognize it's not about my wisdom, it's not about my strength, it's all about Him. 
and His wisdom and His strength and the power of His cross. When we recognize that, not only is our ministry and our lives flooded with power, but we feel freedom. We feel amazing. Let me, let me just illustrate that point. Four years ago, when I was teaching at Westminster Academy, I was teaching Bible, and I'd gone on an Israel trip with Tom and had started talking about becoming an intern on staff here. And so I got an email saying that Tom and Matt and Dr. Gage wanted to have lunch with me. And I thought, oh, they probably want me to write some kind of curriculum for Sunday school or something. So we go out to lunch and we're having lunch and Tom says to me, we'd like you to consider serving as our headmaster. Now, I never had administrative experience, never been in management over people. And so my first instinct was to like smell his drink to see what he had in it because that made no sense to me. But then I went home and talked with my wife, Laura, and we kicked it around and ultimately we obviously said yes. And I tell you what, man, I went into that job feeling unbelievably inadequate, terrified that everybody was going to figure out what a fool I was and how much of a fake I was and a fraud and how just totally incompetent I was. And I spent so much of that first year saying, God, (laughs) please keep them fooled, you know, Please work through me. Please bless our efforts. Please be with this faculty. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to do what I know how to do. I'm going to, my first three priorities are shepherd, shepherd, and shepherd. And I spent that first year thinking to myself, what is going to happen? What is going to happen? What is going to happen? Because it totally wasn't any of my strong suit. And you know what happened? God blessed our socks off. And enrollment grew. And our finances improved. And our scores improved. And so I went into my second year going, maybe I'm not such a moron. (laughs) And we advanced again. You know what happened in the second year? God blessed our socks off and our enrollment grew and our scores improved and our finances improved. And by the third year, this had become such a wonderful thing to me that I had taken the blessings of God and all of his provision that totally he did. And it's definitely nothing that any, me or anybody on my team did. It's all by his goodness. And you know what happened in my third year? I came into my job saying, I got this. This is mine. Look what I've built. I mean, not really. I'm not that stupid. But in my heart, that's what it's saying. And I didn't even realize it. Probably shouldn't be telling you this. (laughs) But in my heart, I'd started saying, look what I've built. Enrollments of 40%. Test scores of... And finances... And all of a sudden, my identity was wrapped up in Bethany. A good thing. A wonderful ministry. But rather than coming to work and saying, all right, this is all the Lord's and I'm going to pour out and give my very, very best effort. And you know what? God is sovereign and I'm going to trust him with the results because he's going to do what he wants to do for his own purposes. And it's all his. And I'm going to live in the freedom of loving people like crazy and pointing them to the cross and lifting them up and serving and loving them and pointing kids to Jesus. And I'm going to do that with my whole heart. And you know what? Everything else is God's. All of a sudden... It became about me. 
So everything that endangered Bethany, every complaint that came, every problem that arose was like, you're, you're coming after my identity and my value and this is starting to feel like slavery and I don't want to go to work today. Been there? It's amazing how you can take the blessing of God, a wife, a husband, a job, kids, and how you can take the blessing and craft your whole identity around the blessing rather than your whole identity around the blesser. And here's the deal. You can't control any of this stuff. It's not yours to control. Even your kids, your spouse, your job, those are blessings from God, gifts to, from God to you. And we try to say, no, it's all mine, mine. We can't control any of it. It could be gone tomorrow. And if our identity and our value and everything else is wrapped up in this, you will be devastated should it be taken away. God never takes it away. And so Paul is calling you to humility, to recognize it's not about your wisdom. It's not about your strength. It's do live in a way that you don't even try. You can't even think of boasting in the presence of God because he's given you everything that you have. He says, when I came to you, brothers, did, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Translation, Paul is saying, I want to be invisible. I don't want you to come to faith. I don't want your faith to rest in the fact that I convinced you with clever words. I want you to come to faith because you've seen the power of the Spirit of God. You know, we took a a team down to Haiti, and on that team were several people who openly admitted that they hadn't given their life to Christ. And I stop and I think to myself, like, I don't know how many times I've tried to articulate the gospel in dad's meetings and in Christmas messages and Easter messages and Thanksgiving plays and on and on and on. And all of that is kind of like, well, that's nice, Sam. But one particular dad goes down to Haiti with us and he sees the community of love and amazing outpouring and and richness of the love of God. And by the end of that trip, he was eager to be with both feet in the camp of the believers of Christ. Why? It's not because he heard a clever message. It's not because he heard some wisdom he'd never heard before. It's because he saw with his own eyes the power of the Spirit of God working in his people to a broken place. And he wanted more of it. And the students who went that were kind of on the fence at the end of the trip were saying, I don't want to come home because I'm going to lose this feeling. And here's the reality. What makes that feeling so amazing is not the fact that you're in Haiti. It's not the fact that you're around poverty. It's not any of that. It's the fact that Christ the Lord dwells in you. And when he manifests himself by you dying to yourself, when his power manifests through you, it becomes addictive and you want more of it and you can't have enough of it. 
But the reality is, is that spirit of power, Christ crucified, comes home with us. It lives in you. And if we'll just die to all the mess that we obsess about and allow that power to dwell in us and through us, it'll become addictive to us here and to those around us here. So how can we trust when God doesn't make sense the foolishness that the world sees? How can we trust the foolishness of God when it doesn't make sense? And the first example of that is Christ himself who went to the cross, who begged and pleaded with God the Father to take the cup away from him, but said, not not my will, but yours be done. And I trust that that cross will bring something brilliant, knowing that on the other side of that was glory and victory and the death of death and the end of sin and communion with his people forever, the ultimate victory through the ultimate defeat. That's the foolishness of God. Or one of my favorite examples that you couldn't possibly, I mean, the wisdom of men would have laughed at this, but in 586, the Babylonians, and I'll close with this illustration. In 586, the Babylonians came in and, and 586 BC, and they destroyed Israel. And here's the deal, with the hundreds of years before that, God had been sending prophets telling his people, turn, stop, stop chasing after all the stuff that's wrecking your lives. Stop, turn to me. I'm a wellspring of living water. Trust in me. And the people spit in the face of God. And so God sent prophets and prophets saying, turn, turn, turn. And they didn't. And finally, I mean, it was so bad that the kings of Israel were sacrificing their own children and the fires of worship to pagan gods. And God finally said, okay, have it your way. And the glory of God departed from the temple and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came and they destroyed Judea. They tore Jerusalem down stone by stone. They, they burned the temple to the ground and they took, they killed a third of all the people. They took some as slaves and the rest of them, they said, nobody, there's no chance this kingdom's coming back. And they scattered the Jews to the ends of the earth. And in the wisdom of Nebuchadnezzar, the wisdom of men, he said, I'll put an end to this whole idea that the kingdom of this Hebrew God is going to establish itself as an everlasting kingdom. Ha, ha, ha. And so he took all of them and sent them off to the ends of the earth. And he took one little boy named Daniel. And he goes back and later on, Nebuchadnezzar's having this troubling dream. And he tells all of his magicians and interpreters, what's going on with this dream? And it's a dream of a, a statue where, where the statue has a head of gold and a chest has a silver, is made of silver. And the loins are out of bronze and the lower parts are out of iron. And he says, what does this mean? And Daniel, this little boy who had just been taken off into exile, goes before the king, and he says this, those are the four kingdoms that will come from you and on. The first one, which we know to be Rome, the second one, which we know to be uh, Persia, or I'm sorry, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. But Daniel says this, and think of the boldness to say this to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, in the time of those kings, the fourth one, so the Roman empire, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. And so if we're talking wisdom of men and foolishness of God, you know, Nebuchadnezzar looks at that and goes, <laughs> you're, you're talking about the nation where we just destroyed everything they have sent their people all throughout the world so that they could never combine again to form an army. (laughs) 
And the rest of them are my slaves here. Right, Daniel. You keep trusting in that God. You keep trusting in that God. Good luck with that. And so we look at what happened with the Jewish diaspora and diaspora and all that where they went in the world. And if you looked at a map of where they settled, this is where they are in the first century. And notice they're not very populated around Judea. There are more Jews living in Asia Minor or Turkey than there are in Judea. There are more Jews in Rome than in Judea. There are more Jews in Egypt at this time than in Judea because they had been scattered everywhere. But here's the remarkable thing. Even though their hopes, they read through the promises, they've got to be thinking, God, are you real? Like, it's been 600 years. Where's this king? But for 600 years, through the darkness, through the wondering, through being treated like trash and a second-class citizen, they held to the promises of God that God would send this kingdom that would never end, a king who would establish righteousness and bring us back to God. And so they built synagogues and they shared these prophecies and all these promises. And generation after generation of them died, never seeing the fulfillment of it. But man, they had established this massive Jewish framework all over the known world. The Sibylline Oracles wrote this, every land, talking about Jews, every land is full of thee and every sea, they're everywhere. If you look at early Jewish communities on a map, that's where major Jewish communities have been scattered in the first century. And you know what? If we look at that, we say, that's foolishness. How in the world do you raise up a kingdom that's been so thoroughly devastated and humiliated. But long before Nebuchadnezzar came, God had this wisdom that he spoke through the prophet Isaiah. He said, And that day, the root of Jesse, Jesus, will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel before there's an exile. And he will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And so in the wisdom of God that seems like foolishness to us, God is saying, I'm going to send out exiles all over the world and they're going to go and they're going to preach the message and the prophecy of what's coming. And their life is going to be stuck in the darkness and in the valley and they're not going to know how do you hope in this. It seems like utter foolishness. But then Jesus comes. And he dies on a cross and he's raised from the dead. And word of this goes all over the world. And the missionaries and the apostles who are sent out, they're not going into lands that had never heard the promises of a coming Savior. But because of that very exile, the Roman world had been saturating in this kerosene, waiting and ready for the news that this Messiah had come. And these evangelists go to those very synagogues and the gospel explodes. Those exiles were missionaries. And you look at the spread of the early church and you notice that the place where it spread the fastest and with the most ferocity were precisely the place where those exiles were planted with the word of God. And so I have a question for you. If that's the wisdom of God, and it took 600 years to play out, but I'll tell you this, 
those exiles that were faithful to the Lord are in heaven going, <laughs> awesome. What a judo technique. Like you totally used the world's wisdom against itself. Amazing God. Where is your life scattered? Where do you look at the, the foolishness of God and say, God, come on, do this. This would be way easier. Just do this. And God is saying, man, trust me. And the darkness and the valleys and the sufferings, I am building a framework that will explode my power, my kingdom in you and through you. Trust. It's not foolishness. Look what I've done. Trust that I'll do it in you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for who you are, for your faithfulness, for your goodness. Lord, I've seen you work in these ways in my life again and again and again and how you rescue me from my own selfishness again and again and again. I thank you that what seems like foolishness to so many has proven to be such powerful wisdom. I thank you for the gift of your son. And though the world might look at it and say it's foolishness to think that God would come and suffer on the cross, your wisdom says that we are worth that price tag. And I thank you for that. I pray that you would be with this congregation, that you would allow your power and the spirit of your power and the power of the cross that reconciles all things to you, that that power would be manifest through us to this city, to our loved ones, to our family, that there would be nobody who would go through this life leaning and trusting in their own strength, but that they would come and be wrapped in your embrace and love by you forever. Lord, you're amazing and we love you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.